The Archetypal Tarot Podcast explores universal human patterns called archetypes by investigating the major arcana of the ancient tarot. We recognize these archetypes because they are present in our own life stories, myths, and culture. Each card represents a stage of the journey for understanding the greater story of our lives. Hello, Julianne here. Sundara's busy exploring the Netherlands, but while she's away, I get to start the new year off with something really exciting. An all new and improved Archetypal Tarot podcast. We are going to be revisiting the major arcana again, but this time with special guests. We're going to give their insights on the themes and ideas presented in these ancient yet totally relevant archetypal stories. And since it's the start of a brand new year, what better time to focus on the fool and cultivating a life of passion and adventure? And we're incredibly excited to present this conversation with best selling author Greg Lavoie, who has quite literally written the book on the nature and nurture of passion, where his first book, Callings, was about finding and following an authentic life. His new book, Vital Signs, picks up on the whys and hows of how we lose and how we regain passion for a life with creativity and abundance. I love this new book, and I really recommend that you get a copy. You can just check out his website at greglavoy.com. And now my conversation with Greg about the fool, zombies, vampires, wildness, intuition, how we can and should reignite passion in our lives. Hey, Greg, how are you? I'm very well. How are you today? <laughs> I am. I am really good, and I'm super excited that that you're going to be on this podcast, especially in the beginning of the year. It's a new year, just yep. because it's a really rich time to talk about talk about passion. So, and as I was thinking about it, I was like, Greg has a passion for passion. Does that, does that sound, to, uh, does that ring true to you? Oh, absolutely. Share with, share with us a little bit more about your book, Vital Signs. I know it sounded like it, you've mentioned it took like 10 years, 10 years uh, in the making. It did, a little bit more actually. Yeah, I got spoiled by the book that preceded it, um, which was Callings, which took me two years alone in a room. Um, but uh, I guess every, every child is a little bit different. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've had this fascination pretty much my whole life. Um, how is it that people create a life that really belongs to them and isn't a knockoff? And, uh, I think a big part of the, the similarity between the two books is that callings was about finding a passion and vital signs is more about living passionately. So I'm, I'm, I'm broadening the beam and looking at a lot of different arenas other than just the vocational and uh, it's really just about the process that we go through in attempting to regain or reclaim, um, rejuvenate our, uh, goes by a lot of names, our spark, our passion, our mojo, our life force, our get up and go. Um, so it's really about how, uh, how we have it initially, of course, how we lose it and how we get it back. I think it's, it's brilliant and completely timely. As I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of calling. It's one of those books that I've read cover to cover many times. Oh. And um, although I think I've only, I've, Vital Signs, I've made it through once, but I can tell you I'm going to be dipping back into it um, uh, just for myself. And just, you know, it's 
incredibly rich. And there's that, that, that question of like, what, what do I do now? Great. I might've found my calling or I was passionate about it, but it, by nature, I guess, passion will fade or erode or things change. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's unfortunately part of the reputation that precedes it is that it's kind of an unstable element and it's naturally going to kind of degrade as soon as you put it in the presence of familiarity or commitment or something like that. But the fact is, in, in, in that sense, nature is really no different than anything else. It, it's really in the nature of nature to fade. You know entropy. What I'm yes, exactly. Precisely. The law of entropy pretty much tells us that any system is eventually over time going to lose energy unless you pump more you know, energy into the system. Or in this case, unless you pump more passion into the system, it is naturally going to fade in any arena, whether you're talking about a, a relationship or a, a career. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the way it goes is that, uh, you know, a cup of coffee is going to cool down unless you reheat the thing. You know, a uh, uh, oatmeal is going to congeal if you stop stirring it, as will marriages. All relationships. I think a lot of people know this syndrome, you know, how soulmates turn into stalemates. And it's because they don't continue to pump energy into the system, attention and gratitude and things like that. Exactly. And there's still, um, that's why I, this book is amazing because you've gone into great, great depth um, into, you know, what passion is and, and like you said, what can happen. But there's still this um, overriding like, like societal belief that passion is somehow just luck or it's magical and mm. that you just kind of get sprinkled on you by a fairy godmother or something at some point. But your book really is talking about passion more as a skill set, you know, something that you can you practice. I, I haven't seen anything else quite there like it. And because this is the archetypal tarot podcast and we in this podcast examine just sort of the, the, the various characters in the tarot is, is looking at them as mythology of who we are and how we experience life. So when, you know, we were talking about getting together for this, this discussion, um, it also being the beginning of the year, the fool character is the zero card in most of many tarot decks, shall I say. And yeah. the fool represents a lot of what you talk about in your book about being wild, uh, taking risks. Uh, in a lot of cases, I think of the fool as just anathema to overthinking. Like the fool does not think. The fool falls off the cliff, has a direct relationship with like, oh, this just happened. What do I do now? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's funny. I also think of the fool as you know the jester, the, mm -hmm. the joke, the joker that's in every deck. Um, and you know, I think of it as kind of the surprise element that's just inherent in life. It's, um, it's the unexpected. And I think at some level, despite the fact that we're, in a, we're sort of in a constant tug of war with ourselves around passion versus security or safety or comfort or all that, I think there is a part of us that's like the dog that's always scratching at the back door wanting out. You know, mm -hmm. like there's a part of us that just wants to kind of run tire tracks across this nice, neat suburban lawn, this this <laughs> mindset of security and comfort. It's there's a part of us that just, you know, 
um, what is that wonderful phrase from Sark? Uh, Tame is what we're taught, wild is what we are. Oh, brilliant. And it's oh, so and true. I, and that's actually the dog is depicted in many of the school uh, cards. Oh, that's and right. It is. And a lot of times when I'm in the, I think the very first podcast we did almost like two and a half years ago, my colleague and I, Sandera, discussed what the dog might represent. And often you can see it is that wild part of us that's just, mm. it's nipping at the heels. And in oh, the card, wow. the most popular depiction of the rider weight is the dog is right there, literally at the fool's heel going, yep, we're going over that cliff and I'm coming <laughs> with you. Yeah. You mean yip. Yep, exactly, exactly. Or as I like to describe it, wily coyote falling off the cliff and oh, going, exactly. Like, <laughs> what just That's happened? half the reason I have always loved having dogs around. I grew up with them, and I've had them for good portions of my adult life. And part of what I love about having an animal in the house is that um, they they always help to literally ground me I can get, especially in a profession like mine, because I'm a writer, I can get very thinky and very up in mm, my head, mm-hmm. very abstract. And the dog is grounded all four feet on on Mother Earth. And um, their their needs are so basic and so elemental. And I just feel like my brain is like a Rubik's Cube compared to having a dog around. <laughs> and it's it's great for me. And I think it's great for people to have a um, a, a good first-person singular relationship with the animal kingdom, whatever form that can take. It's true, and I, I agree. Just being around, being around animals, and they're they're they're, they're also and dogs, especially. They're a symbol of loyalty, mm. and just you know, they're they're passionate about throw the ball. <laughs> They'll never let that go. They're passionate about food, and there's a uh, yeah, there are. It's a great way for us to kind of connect and also remember that we're companions with the animal. You know, it's not just like I have a dog. The dog also has me. And that's right. uh, that relationship. Right. And that's one of my, so far, one of my favorite chapters. And um, I'm highly going to encourage everyone listening to get uh, to get your book and dive into it. And I found that I can read it cover to cover as well as just dive into any one chapter, anything that sort of sparked my interest in this. The one for me right now is uh, you're talking about the call of the wild. Mm. Um, And you really made me think about a lot of things that just have never occurred to me about um, our, because especially myself, really feel very domesticated. I live in a big city. I pretty much spend all my time in a big city, even though, Daily, I go out to the park or the woods or somewhere, but that all of the points you made about the complete necessity of honoring and nurturing a relationship um, with wildness, both as an archetype and experientially. Right. Um, I love the depth that you go into for all of the, the major sections, the spark, the questing, just being free to express, but the call of the wild and I, hits me personally, but I also can kind of see it happening in the culture. Uh, movies that are coming out in the last couple of years about, uh, you know, like the the woman who walked the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, by herself. And right, that, that, that it, so it's called wild and it's relationship to getting back to that wildness. And it's not always pretty. <laughs> it's not always comfortable. Yeah, I think, uh, boy, oh boy. 
it, it is fascinating. I'm delighted to see that there's more and more dialogue about this this side of us. But you know, I, I have run across this um, that some people actually define neurosis as the the struggle, the split between two parts of us, and uh, effectively what it comes down to is the socialized part of us and the natural part. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the conditioned part and the natural part, and um, uh, the tame side and the wild side, and um, and I re- and I really get that. Uh, I mean, I've heard Freud talk about. I mean, not literally heard him, but I've read him <laughs> talk about. You know, the the fact that civilization itself um, is the counterpoint, counterpunch to to nature, and it was. You know, we pretty much designed it to separate us from the natural world, and you know, some of the challenges of cold, dark, wet, hungry. Uh, that kind of thing, um, but it's it, it, in some ways it's gotten way out of hand. And we, according to the uh, EPA, we spend 90% of our times. This is Americans um, indoors, and when we do go outside, our feet are very seldom on the actual ground. They're on sidewalks, they're on linoleum, they're on carpeting. Uh, they're you know we we go for ages without feeling water pouring over our bodies that emanates from something other than a shower head and you know so we've really lost a lot in our as it were our coming of age you know i mean as a species and uh, and everybody can relate to this 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 um being divided within ourselves and uh and i just think that it's really important to remember how to to what degree we are animals ourselves you know to 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 remember our place in the natural scheme of things um and it takes a few days of being away from the office and the city and all what you just described for instance um for it for that to come back to us there was a fellow that i interviewed after who used who used to take people into the wilderness uh, as he was a college professor and he was the guy who started EcoCycle. And he took people out there. It took them four days, he said, to start shedding all that cultural uh, conditioning and start their, their natural selves again. And so he says, culture may be 20, 15,000 years old, but it's four days deep. How close to the <clears throat> surface the, this part of us is that feels at home sitting around a small circle of people around a fireplace and looking up into the night sky, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Oh, Greg, I want to go camping right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got to do that. You know, it's that. funny. I, to this day, I still carry around with me from house to house to house this this disgusting, moldy old um, backpacking um, backpack. I mean, it's been 20 years since I've gone out into the wilderness in, in any way that I would need such a thing, but I can't let go of it because it represents a link to this part of me I'm not quite ready to let go of. Interesting. It is, and I'm I'm thinking about the, the four days, which at once seems like not a lot of time at all, like only four days to kind of peel back that layer, but at the same time, because we are animals, you know, on two legs, it doesn't seem almost, you know, like long enough to pull that away. But I, sure. in my life, I found that to be true. It, it was a camp, you know, just your basic city person's camping trip to the, you know, drive up to the campsite kind of thing, car camping. But that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take too long for that to sort of peel back. But there's, yeah. 
there's that sense of safety is that like once once we're done, we're going to pack up our tents and go back to our kind of safe, domesticated, um, you know, environment. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I see this reflected in the culture with at least last year and the year before. There are a couple of themes that I, I thought might be fun to talk about you with. Um, and one is like the idea of vampires and zombies and the other is this, um, all these shows and these are kind of separate, but who knows the, um, the scenarios where all technology has gone, you know, we just poke post apocalyptic and, mm. you know, the apocalypse really is technology going away and all of us kind of having to go back to living without electricity and our gadgets and all of that. Right. Um, or the zombie apocalypse, it, you know, our fear you know, of what would it be like, but also uh, to me, the underside of that is I think people would be a lot happier naturally getting back to this wild part of us, even though with these shows, we're taken kicking and screaming into it. Right. Um, You know, and I'm, I'm not of the um, either or school of thought on, on this kind of stuff. I, I just think we need to bring more of the wild energies, the creative energies, the, uh, uh, the passionate energies, the impulsiveness, just to bring it more back into the fold in our own individual lives, no less the culture. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an anarchist in that sense. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for shaking ourselves up for um, just little things like drive to work a slightly different route, get up on the other side of the bed in the morning, sit at a a different side of the breakfast table for breakfast, uh, rearrange like one piece of furniture in your house, sort of that approach to bringing more vitality and of the surprise element, the fool element into the picture, just ways to shake ourselves up just a little and not be quite so composed. But I, you know, this thing about the vampires and the zombies amazes me. I actually Googled this at one point and found out that there, there have been over 50,000 um, books written about vampires and zombies just in the last two decades. Wow. And, and something like 500 movies and television shows. Now, that is a huge obsession. That, that is it is. More than even fascination. That, that's us trying to work something out. Part of it, of course, is you, know, you look at these two creatures. The vampire sucks the life force out of others. The zombie... Um, you know, is is in a catatonic state in a sense. It's the um, undead. Yeah, exactly. The Walking Dead. And I think there's a part of us, like I think we mentioned when we chatted a couple of days ago, this movie Shaun of the Dead, where they Love show that the um, workers at a, I guess it was like a typical little inner city grocery store or something. And these were not zombies, but they were making a point that day to day life for a lot of people looks like that because here you are you know, having the life sucked out of you at a McJob. And uh, they showed this row of cashiers just looking like zombies going through their paces. And I think there's a lot of people who can relate to everything from being at a job that sucks the life out of you, being in a relationship that, you know, where you feel like a shadow of your full glorious self. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to these these kinds of scenarios, uh, just uh, being being involved in activities or even jobs that are literally demeaning, that, that have no meaning or no purpose for you. And um, I think this, uh, you know, maybe overstating it to call it an epidemic, but 
you know, when the Gallup polls 142 countries like they did in 2012, and they find out that 87% of workers are either um, not engaged or actively disengaged, that tells you partly, I think, why we're we're uh, fascinated by vampires and zombies. Absolutely, and I, I personally am not into or, or really get all that excited just because something's a vampire or a zombie, but being kind of in the archetypal realm for so long, it definitely mm-hmm. seems like what is going on. There's this I, in both of the both vampires and zombies. There's no cure, and a lot of the stories, you know, that basically there's the as it's bubbling up out of the culture. There's a vampire is always going to be a vampire. You can never not be a vampire unless you're killed, which is a stake in the heart. Um, right. Heavy symbology there. And there's no real cure for being a zombie. You just have to escape becoming one yourself. Yeah. And Although there was this one movie. I don't know, remember the name of it. It involved young, uh, two young people. Um, he was a zombie. She was not. And through his relationship with her, and I guess I haven't seen the movie, falling in love with her, he unzombified himself. So oh, good. This one movie that love is also an antidote, not you know, not just being decapitated or something. That's good. It's good to see sort of the what we perceive as like this can't be changed. To have uh, artists and people starting to present something, I was like, hey, well, maybe not. Maybe we don't right. all have to become zombies. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think the uh, World War Z was one of the first ones I ever saw. I think there was one or two before that, maybe 28 days, that showed um, that zombies didn't have to be slow and sluggish and mm-hmm. they could be fast and wicked. And uh, it's like, yeah, people are playing with the archetype and trying to, in that case, I sort of pump some some vitality into the creature. Absolutely. And uh, I've always, I've been fascinated with the idea of the, zombie apocalypse and, and every once in a while I'll talk to somebody and they'll seems like they're talking about a real thing and it kind of gets me a little bit worried <laughs> <laughs> it's not really going to happen like the cdc yeah. put out a april fool's thing about the how to prepare for the zombie apocalypse and right to me it's like yeah. your your book and the idea of passion and recognizing that passion isn't just this lucky thing that happens to you in your 20s uh, or something that falls from the sky on you that it can be looked at, you know, in so many different ways and, and more of as a skill that, yeah. you know, that to me is the antidote to the zombie apocalypse is it's all in our hands in very, very simple, you know, simple ways. There's a spectrum that you present in the book um, of, you know, like you said, making tiny changes like eat breakfast in a different part of your house, just do something different. And that's all backed up with, you know, neuro, uh, neuro science, basically the brain loves novelty. And exactly. when we get tired of something, we got to do something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very true. I, I ran across a book called new, um, by uh, Winifred Gallagher. And I mean, her whole thing is what she calls neophilia and it's the, the, uh, passion for novelty, like you said, and th- that she cites studies that find that, when they look for the traits that characterize people who, who flourish over the years, um, one of the traits that most of them have in common is um, a love of novelty or a, an interest in novelty. And uh, I just think that's, uh, you know, I mean, really the Buddhists have been talking about this forever. It's mm. called beginner's mind. Um, 
you know, uh, educators talk about being a lifelong learner. It's, you know, and th I'm, this is in the survival mechanism category to me because I think you're, you're, um, you're much more likely to have a long term if you take an interest in life, you know, that uh, our, our, our attachment to life depends on our interest in it to a great degree. And I think neophilia is critical, is cultivate an interest in the world again. When you walk into big lobbies, grand atriums, look up, you know, um, you know, just uh, carry a magnifying glass with you when you wander around the world because there's a whole universe of, of the tiny out there that is just radically amazing uh, and ways to reframe the world um, just by looking through um, a magnifying glass. Uh, have the astronomy picture of the day uh, link on your on the on the you know what do they call them the bookmarks on your ways to re-engage and remember that the world is amazing. That's why I have this page on my website called the Wow Page. And I love that page. <laughs> oh, I do too. It's just pictures of amazing things, and uh, I just it's as simple as that is to remember that the world is shot through with amazement and surprise and. Uh, wonderful, delicious foolishness, and, and we can partake of it anytime we want to uh, turn that receiver on and be a beginner again. We hope you're enjoying this episode, and we invite you to become a part of the Archetypal Tarot team by becoming a patron. It's super easy, and there are some awesome rewards for joining. So just visit tiny.cc slash tarot for more information. And now back to our program. And, and it, you know, and I get it. This is a, this is a high art, you know, because people love expertise and mastery. And I've earned my 10,000 hours, according to Malcolm Gladwell, and now I'm a master, and, <laughs> you know, um, and the, the idea of being a rookie again is a stinker at all, in almost any category. Um, but it's where the growth and the development is. You know, I saw a book cover couple of days ago that said, great leaders ask great questions. Mm. I don't know anything more about the book, but when I saw the cover, I just intuitively knew that was right. You know, is, and it's really the same skill that children have. Newsweek magazine said they ask 100 questions a day on average, little ones. <laughs> so that would drive most parents to drink. <laughs> and, and, you know, unfortunately for the children, it, that shuts down pretty quickly in life. And for the girls. Yeah. So hang around with a dog. Hang around a four-year-old. Well, three is great, too, but four, they're just, they're getting just, they're putting stuff together, and so they ask even more annoying questions. But I, yeah. my, my role as an auntie, I get the, you know, benefit of kind of taking the pressure off the parents, being like, oh, bring on auntie. Because I, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of fun answering questions. And a lot of times just making stuff up and seeing if they can kind of call me on my, my BS. And um, that's a really great creative way to play out their creativity. It's like, why is the sky blue? And I just make up something completely ridiculous. Like, <laughs> they're blueberries or whatever. And you just watch, oh, you know, I watch my great. niece just kind of look at me like, no, that's totally not true. And I'm like, uh, you're right. Uh, it's not true. That's great. That sort of reminds me of that game my dad used to play with me and my two brothers. Sort of a version of that, except we had to tell the truth. He, it was the, he called it the alien game. And uh, he was an alien. 
we were the earthlings. We'd go out into the neighborhood and he would ask questions like you just said, like, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, what are the white formations that move through your atmosphere and stuff like that? And we had to try to explain planet Earth to him. And it was an incredible teaching. Oh, my God. I mean, the single greatest gift he ever gave me was that sense of uh, questions equals discovery. And discovery is half of where passion is. I love that. That's a great, I, I, that's a perfect way to kind of learn and teach at the same time. Um, I'm wondering, anybody in their job, if they spent, you know, as long as you're not some big duffy corporate thing, or maybe you could do it anyway, is have, um, we did something similar in kind of corporate level years ago, but we, we would have one department try to explain what the other department did in <laughs> kind of in reverse. Um, and then ask, you know, ask them, okay, now you have to do it. I mean, I wanted to do interpretive dance, but nobody would go for that. Um, so we had to basically mime, do like without words, explain a certain part. And this is technology, networking and all of that. So, you know, getting that into your workplace to do something creative and different, um, you know, get up and explain, you know, why a fiber optic cable is better than, you know, regular you know, cable and the guys on that team came up with this brilliant, hilarious way of explaining and lining everybody up and basically doing, doing, um, you know, an interpretation of what it would look like going oh. through fiber optic versus a regular cable. And it was hilarious. You know what? Everybody in that room remembered what I, it was. I suspect this is why my older brother just decided to retire from Stanford and go to work for Google. Ah. Two very different cultures. You, what you're describing sounds like a place like Google, you know, where people are encouraged to be creative and um, the place itself is just wild looking and the food is free. And But um, he, he, he decided to retire from Stanford because he said he, he went uh, and worked for Google on the Google Glass project for about two years as a leave of absence from the university, temporary leave. And he fell in love with the place. He was having more fun, he said, and enjoying fresh challenge. And he, he decided to, and you know, who retires from a tenured professorship at a place like Stanford? Right. And the fact that he did it because he wanted more fun in his life, you know, is, strikes me as pretty amazing validation for how important that little precious commodity is. Um, but, you know, he's going from a culture where, um, Tenureship is is the the top of the heap, and he, he he actually said this to me. One of the primary motivations for him leaving was a clip, a newspaper clip I had sent him way back when he started the university, and um, I guess it was like maybe the late '80s, early '90s, and it was it said um, how fossils are formed. Step one, get tenure. Step two, teach for 20 years. <laughs> I know. And, uh, and he said, I, I had that thing on the center of my bulletin board for the last um, 19 years. And I swore that would never happen to me. And by the time he leaves Stanford, it's going to have been 10 year plus 20 years. And, wow. um, and you know, to, to go from a culture that's very, you know, tenure oriented, a lot of people are concerned that it tends to clamp its teeth down on people's creativity and make them lazy and whatnot. Um, and to go to a place like Google, which is like throwing the deck of cards up in the air, I can see why he did it, though. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and to, to to realize that, oh, I don't want to be that fossil, or maybe I am that fossil right now. 
Right. And the, the, the opportunity came up and, and kind of, you know, it, it takes some it takes some bravery oh. to, to make that leap. No doubt about it. Um, this is one of the reasons I'm, I always encourage people to start small. Start small trying to, you know, work more vitality into your life or taking risks or, um, you know, bundling more novelty into your life. You know, you don't have to turn your life upside down. I think the, the real key and the real heart of the discernment process is take a step and then look at the feedback your life gives you. Mm. Okay. You take a step towards something you're fascinated by or something that's new for you or something that's a, a little bit of a risk. Maybe you take your jokes out to open mic night. You know, maybe you're the first one to make up after a quarrel, you know, little, little you know, small, small stuff. Um, and then you look at the feedback that your own life gives to you. You know, do you feel better or worse? Do you feel more awake or more asleep? Uh, you know, you take a step and you look at the feedback. and. Um, and I just think that's really where, if nothing else, what you give yourself by taking that small steps approach is the experience of momentum early in the game, you know, so that all the goodies and all the goals aren't long term um, and all the problems and all the obstacles are short term. And, and I think the experience of progress, of, of movement, um, is much more likely to keep you going. And I certainly don't believe in hurling your body against the wall, like just up and quit your job immediately, unless it's absolutely toxic. <clears throat> um, you know, it's just take experiments with some new things, some places where you feel um, some life force and just see how it looks. Or for that matter, cut out some of the parts of your life where you're just draining. It's, it, you know, the, the energy is draining out of you and stop doing it and see what happens. I think what you're you're talking about that relationship between safety and risk and excitement, yeah. and that it doesn't it, you don't always have to to me when I you can basically fall into a situation where everything changes and it wasn't your choice that was like a by accident or something changed in your family or your job right. or whatever happens and you're thrown into it. There's a huge amount of energy that goes with that. I think if you don't resist it, but mm. for most people, your day to day life. You have always dreamed of doing one thing or another, or maybe maybe you are living your dream, but it's kind of starting to drain, and you start questioning whether you should continue to do it. That ability to make those smaller steps, to make those decisions, you know, call a friend, do whatever, run something by somebody else, right. um, you know, do a bunch of Google searches about it, um, and take some action that is in relationship to the outside world, and that's that's something I see for myself because I do a lot of stuff in my head first, <laughs> but I actually have to ping the outside world either by a phone call or some communication or something that actually happens outside my brain. Um, that and then really seeing that how does it does it come back to me? You know, like I love that the dictum of what happens is can be your answer. You know, I send that yeah, out right. and see what happens. Right. Yeah, I know. I consulted with a guy last year who said that. Um, he was waiting for what he called absolute clarity before he would act on a particular passion that he had identified. And I, I uh, suggested that perhaps the clarity he, he seemed absolutely intent on finding, he was he may only find by taking action. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like I ran across an improvisational 
uh, theater teacher named Nina Weiss. Um, and uh, she said, the, the, you know, spontaneous action is really critical, not just the well-planned, uh, well-thought-out, um, but she says the equation is ready, fire, aim. Uh, <laughs> and I love that. I, I think there's so much to that, because, uh, you know, and especially for somebody like myself, who's I, I tend to be a planner. My, my default position is planning. And, uh, and she says um, spontaneous is so important. Just allow yourself to be moved toward what do you really feel like doing in this moment? Who do you really feel like being with in this moment? What do you really feel like saying to this person in this situation? You know, um, what am I most curious about right in this moment? Uh, you know what I'm saying? And allowing yourself to be spontaneous. It, again, it could be a high art. It is. And I, I don't know. I question the belief that you're ever absolutely certain. You know, I think there are times when, when our intuition is pinging us and saying, ding, 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 you're ready to go, you're ready to go, you're ready to go. But the, yeah. the strategic brain we put in charge, like wow. that's the number, like that's because the world supports that, especially sort of the Western culture of work ethic and all of that is the, mm. the, the strategic mind is there. But yeah. um, often that fights with the artistic part of my brain. That's just like strategy, strategy, like yeah, just bro. go, <laughs> you, you're just dying here. But there, I have the only times I felt really, really sure about something, they were not strategic. It wasn't related to a plan. It was an intuitive sense. It's like, yep, this is the right thing to do. Right, exactly. And exactly. And I you think do it. Practicing the intuitive um, arts on a regular basis, it's just a muscle that you can train. Like you said, it's a skill that you can build. But I think that over time, by acting on little intuitions, you know, um, what do I really want to order at the restaurant? Which book do I really want to pick up off the shelf? Um, you know, who do I really feel like spending time with? That by doing that over the course of time, it's almost like um, it's almost like instinct and reason become kind of indistinguishable. You know, that mm. you just act when you act with spontaneity, you're actually acting with great authority because it's practice. You know, and you can begin to trust your intuitions and trust your impulses because it's a it's a well used muscle, and you know that there's 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 some deep truth in there, but I think that only comes by being willing to practice it with some regularity. Yeah, you can't do it any other way. That's, that's therein lies the rub. You can't mess with intuition. You're either working on it or you're not. Um, I think in small ways, trusting a little, like I'm going to turn left here and maybe there'll be a parking space. You know, there are less risky ways, but there's no way to really strengthen that muscle and work with intuition um, unless you actually follow it. But intuition in those low-risk situations, like trying to find a parking space or, some, you know, finding something in a store or what have you, are good ways to, to, to work with that. Right, exactly. Some, a friend used to tell me to cover the captions on cartoons and try to guess what the caption is by looking at the cartoon itself. Oh, that's fun. That's, that's creative. Yeah. You might come up with something even better. So... This I love this conversation. I think hey, this is the perfect time to be talking about it to carry that, carry that energy and know that like, you know, you've written this entire wonderful book that is deeply researched and also has your own personal narrative as a, a creative person running through it. 
that, you know, there isn't anything out there quite like it and present things with, uh, I think, really, really keen insight in, into it. And um, I can't wait to see what other people think of it. And I'm certainly going to be using it um, for myself and have already. I mean, there's, you know, I've, I did just like calling, you know, it was the only time I've ever really completely filled in the very blank page at the very back with my notes and page number this, page number that, go back to that. Um, and it's inc- I think you should be very proud of yourself, sir. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I thank you so much. That's just music to my ears because yeah. ultimately I wanted, I just wanted to speak to people. I want people to recognize themselves in it. I want to make it real life 101, not abstract, not intellectual and academic, not um, certainly not the five easy steps, but to, no. to really tell it like it is. What is it really like to lose and try to regain a sense of passion for your own life, uh, excitement for waking up in the morning, uh, beginner's mind? I mean, all these things there. Uh, I just want to make it relatable to I think you have, and 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 like I mentioned earlier, the beauty of the book not only does it have a a narrative running through it, but it's just going to the front to the uh, contents. And I think if people just intuitively looked over, you know, the the sections that you've got there, um, and just bounced right into that, they could get a lot from it. And we unfortunately live in this. Everyone wants the bullet points with five easy steps and right. passion is, is definitely, I think you, you can't really, you could probably have something that would work pretty okay. But I think for most of us, we've reached a point in, a point in our lives where that bullet point, oh, that's kind of nice, the five steps, but yeah, it's not right, going to hit yeah. home. Where's my passion app? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You could, you know, you could wash a bunch of great stuff out of it. But what you you end up with is just something of five generic lists. This, I think, what is really kind of meaty about it is dip into any one of these that calls to you, and you're going to get something out of it that's not just a cut and dried. You know, yeah. they call it a listicle. You know, right. it's a blog post is just a list. Like uh, I'm done yeah. with lists. There's, yeah. there's a million Although, of them out know, there. So, so I'll, I'll rise to the challenge. I will, I'll, I'll give you uh, or your listeners. <laughs> I'll give you a list of five things, okay? Okay. This is this is really in the absurd category, but here's here's a list of like five five things you you could do to to beef up the quality of passion and vitality and life force in your life. So number one is pay attention to what is trying to emerge in your life, to what mm-hmm. is trying to happen. Just step back from busyness as usual and listen to what's in there. That's number one. Number two, remember that you have a use by date. You know, let mm-hmm. the facts of your personal mortality sink in, really sink in, in your face sink in and inspire you to action. Um, number three, come up with a bucket list. You know, there's an uh, artist uh, named Candy Chang who started something called the uh, Before I Die, I Want To, dot, dot, dot. And there are 700 cities around the world that now have these great big walls outdoors that have Before I Die, I Want To. and the public fills them out, um, and I mean really fills them out. It's incredible. Um, so it's all about a bucket list. Uh, four, um, always give yourself something to look forward to. You know, the word adventure comes from a word meaning something about to happen. Oh. An advent, you know, advent referring to the coming of Christ. So 
a spirit of adventure in life is one where you're always giving yourself something to look forward to. And, and um, finally, let's see, I would say, look for where you're restless. Look for where restlessness, you know, makes itself um, known in your life. And um, I'm going to borrow this from a psychologist named Arnold Mindell, started something called process oriented psychology. Um, he says, uh, look at where there's restlessness and ask the question, what wants to move and where does it want to go? Ooh. I, I mean, he says, look at the word restless all by itself. Rest less. less. So there's my, there's my, my, my list of five. You're five. <laughs> Those are all really big. Too. They're amazing. Well, that's, that's my anybody. kind of my point, you know, <laughs> it's, exactly. a, it's, it's Five, five things, but each one of them is a lifetime's worth of work, really. They really are, yeah. What is your life telling you? I've definitely something I've, I've keyed into and I have a couple articles of like understanding the seasons, like what season are you in? What are you being called to do to to rest, to plant, to harvest? Like where are you with that? And that's a, that for me at that time was a really great way to frame it because the what is my life telling you can be a little overwhelming because the strategic mind's like, I got to analyze this. And, you know, you end up with this kind of crazy scenario in your head. And um, right. what is your life telling you? And is there anything, one little specific thing that's popping up so you don't get lost in the, you know, it's too much, you know, to, and just to have enough sort of Velcro to like pull on to something like that. <laughs> but those are, those are rich, rich, rich questions. And I think perfect for the, the time of this time of year and a lot of what I got from, from reading your book and I also experienced in my own life is the sense of play, mm. you know, really allow yourself to play and the richness that can come from that. And we play with dogs, we, you know, we play with children. There are great teachers, I think, all around us just kind of waiting for us to wake up oh, and absolutely. be pulled and play, into play, play. Is like play. Also play with the, Play with the hard stuff too. Not just go out and mm. play ball or play with your dog, or you know, it's like bring a playful, improvisational attitude toward the hard stuff, the challenges, mm. the over reliance on security and comfort to the point that you're stagnating and breeding mosquitoes, you know, or, or bring uh, bring playfulness to the shadow, to the fear of moving forward. Uh, again, I'm thinking of I think it was Nina Weiss who held a, um, it was a party in celebration of depression. And she had everybody come, everybody had to wear black, everybody had to bring black food. There was black napkins and black plates and black caviar and <laughs> black olives. And, and, and whenever somebody asked how you were, you had to say terrible, miserable, awful, and recite a litany of all your complaints. And, and they did this for like two hours and then they stopped and danced. I just think that's brilliant. It is brilliant, and it's it's really just a, you know, I'm I'm circling back to the fool character, the trickster, you know, or the the coyote character, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that the archetype of the trickster fool has existed, you know, since we were able to like write stuff down, and that that party that she threw was exactly it. It's turning everything on its head. It's almost like going through to find the absurd within something that is deeply serious depression, you know, like, wow, there's nothing funny about that, but right. turning all of it on its head right. and working with it in that way, incredibly powerful and not something most people would think of. 
So that, you know, I'm going to add number six on here. Turn something upside down. You know, turn it inside out. And, right. You know, relationships huge. You know, when you're in a romantic relationship with somebody, certain some, sometimes humor is the only way to deal with it. Mm. And the couples that I know that I just really, really admire, they have regular doses of humor mm, in their life. To apply humor to the the fights, you know, my my yeah. wife and I did this once. She and I were fighting, and so what we did is we sat in the living room in our living room this is in the southwest so the it was all tile all right that's important for later in the story so we sit on the floor with our backs facing each other so we're ba- we're back to back we're facing out into the room away from each other and for about a minute what we just did is we yelled our frustrations just out into the air at each other I mean, it was toward each other but not facing right. one another and so for one minute we just just um uh, purged and then we turned around and we each had a bucket filled with water we turned around and poured them over each other's heads <laughs> it is impossible to to stay in fighting mode when you do something like that and we oh, got like to that. scream it out but not at the other guy's face yeah you know? and it was just just play with the energy and don't take it so seriously and um I mean, the fact of the matter is she is still my ex-wife. Uh, it, doesn't, it isn't necessarily a cure-all, but it's just a way to turn it upside down, like you said. Absolutely. I love that. I love that story. And then um, <laughs> what a great, I mean, you could do that with, you could do that in a relationship or with a friend. I mean, if people are willing to kind of go there, and that's kind of what it is, right? Like yeah. both people taking, you know, having the willingness. And, and, and part of that is just remembering the value of, of the absurd and turning things upside down or, or recognizing that, you know what, I don't know what else to do. I'm in such pain. I'll try anything. Exactly. And I think sometimes, sometimes life kind of gets like that, where it's like, I've tried this, you know, might as well. Right. Yeah. And yet that's also part of, I think that's part of coming back to life is you get to a point of being desperate. And I think desperation is a, in some ways it's a marvelous place to be. You know, yeah. you know, you're, you've hit bottom. There's only up from there. And um, I just think that there's something, you know, I mean, it feels terrible when you're in it. I understand. Uh, and I think, yeah. there, um, but um, something about the depression, suppression, repression thing, they all mean the same thing. You're pushing something down. And at some point, the soul just rebels. And uh, you're just, you're depressed and you're bored and you're restless and you're lost. But that's act one of a two-act play. And the second part is liberation and resurrection and, and some healing. And whatever's on the flip side of depression is expression. Yeah. And it's, I think, too, and, and, and during this couple of years that we've done this podcast and just using the tarot, the major arcana and those situations and characters to, because it, it really is quite brilliant in mythology, not only as you know, a model of the hero's journey, but things like what you were just talking about, uh, you know, in Tarot, people would talk about the tower where everything is just, that's it. You just, it's all broken down. And that is, sure, it's sucky. It's horrible to be in it, but it is a necessary part of our life existence, either in big or small ways. You know, you can have one day that everything got torn down and then you start building again. But the, to me, the danger is, 
where you fall into dispassion because you're just treading water. You know, the hanged man is staying hung upside down and never actually does anything. It's mm-hmm. deadening. You're completely under the water at that point. But those moments, you know, where you have the breakdown in order to have the breakthrough, really looking at the, the broad spectrum of everything we go through in our life is necessary. Yeah. doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable, but right. it's yeah, I think important. That's why the Tarot, those kind of modalities are so powerful. The archetypal yeah. realm, the hero's journey. I mean, that's such powerful stuff. And we're continually drawn to it because I think we recognize that's who we are, mm. you know, and, and not only do you get the sense that like this is happening to other people. So there's a kinship built into that, you know, those, the different stages that we go through, but to recognize that, you know, you get a little bit of like, it's okay. This is like I was saying, like the, the tower, which is just the kind of destruction of something, the end of something, mm. but it is, it is an important part of the whole picture. It goes against, I think, this Western ideal of everything needs to be really pretty all of the time and work out really well and have an end goal. But life is messy, but it also has these touchstone points that we share with each other um, and that we've, you know, as a humanity, has been continually sharing. Right. Exactly. Um, and that, that I think... Too, that even, even in the midst of the darkness or the depression or the uh, all the anxiety and the fear that there is still every bit as much beauty in the world as there was before you felt that way. Yeah. You know, it's, still, it's still there and can still be appreciated, maybe even more so. Um, I mean, I just think that's part of living passionately as well as living it out, all of it, fully, feeling everything. I mean, Gene Houston says that people who are bigger than life are not necessarily people who are living on big grand stages and they know in, influential people and they're, they've got... Uh, fame and fortune, um, but people who are deeply plugged in, who, who are operating, who, what does she say? Um, burning on more burners, firing mm-hmm. on more burners. They're, they feel their emotions, all of them, the whole spectrum of, spectrum of them fully, you know, and that's what she calls people who are bigger than life, is people who are, um, feel things deeply and truly and don't try to make end runs around any of it, whether it's um, the joyous or the jarring. Absolutely. Thinking of the song and I'm thinking of your website. It's, I, and, and I've learned from Jean before too and talk about being in a room with somebody who lives big and <laughs> feels big. And is there. I mean, huge amounts. Just energetically being in the same room with Jean has been um, a, a blessing and amazement and an inspiration. Um, there's a song. And because your website, you've listed, uh, so gregbevoy.com, G-R-E-G-G, lavoy.com. You have all these resources to for for everyone to look at passion. There's songs about passion. There's other books, resources, movies, and right. I'm going to suggest one for yours. Um, oh, yeah? There's a song. There's a song by a woman named Spice. Oh, I've heard. And that. that's just she's fantastic. She's an amazing singer songwriter. And there's a song called I Feel It All. I feel it all. Oh, that's marvelous. Yeah, that one's been coming up on shuffle for me a lot lately. Okay. But that's a good one to that's a good one to add because kind of like you're saying the there you know you and I are not the only ones who've who've dealt with you know creativity and finding passion and calling. I would everybody listening to this um, has gone through you know the ups and downs and how do I you know how do I bridge this gap or get out of this doldrum or whatever it is. I want to point there's a community here. We all go through this and 
with that, there's these resources, like your wow page on your website. There's songs that we can listen to, little tiny changes that we can make and other resources. So I think for me, yeah, 2015, kind of feeling more about community and sharing all this stuff out even more. If people are interested, go to your website and suggest some other books and wow pictures and all of that. And oh, I would love that. And continue to make it alive. Because be three months from now, we're going to want to kick this one down the road a little bit farther. You know, we've got our January <laughs> energy. But right, exactly. It's going right. to happen. Yeah. Right around the Ides of March, you're going to be like, all right, I live past it. Mean, what do I do now? Right. So, <laughs> thank you so much for building that resource. And um, I'm, uh, I will continue to send stuff as it comes along. It's got my imagination fired up and Wonderful. keenly listening in. Is there any, anything else or anything exciting that you're going to be doing, some teaching gigs or anything you well, want to tell the... Yeah, I hit the road on Saturday for um, about a four months of book touring. I've got oh it's all over the country and it's all on the website. Um, okay. But uh, I'm going to be a busy boy in the next few months. But, you know, this is any author can appreciate this. This is the window. Um, so I decided to jump through the, the hoop and really uh, got probably 30 speaking engagements over the next few months. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, good. I, you're, you're absolutely a, a, a joy to speak with, and I'm oh. super expi- excited and honored that, that uh, you're showing up for our humble little podcast here. We have a lot of <laughs> listeners, though, and I think they're really going to enjoy this. And um, hurrah, excellent. So by April, May, I'm going to send you another, send you another email, see how things are going. And um, we'll definitely have people visit your website and buy this book for crying out loud. Seriously. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like anybody who's got a pulse, that's the way I wrote a review on it. Mm. It's everybody at one point in their life. And for people like me weekly, um, need to better ways and inspiration to, you know, find passion, follow passion, and live while I'm living. That's kind of a big goal, you know? Absolutely. Well, thank you, and I thank you for just your good works in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're one of the the soul tenders. (laughs) Appreciate that. Thanks, Greg. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to become a part of the Archetypal Tarot team by becoming one of our patrons. Our patrons are awesome. So if you're interested, visit tiny.cc slash tarot for more information and the awesome rewards for joining. That's tiny.cc slash tarot. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Archetypal Tarot Podcast. More information on Greg can be found at his website, greglavoy.com. That's G-R-E-G-G. L-E-V-O-Y dot com. And the complete show notes can be found at archetypist.com slash passion. Our theme song was provided by Apollo Wildcat, and this is a production of Both And Media. Did you enjoy the show? We would love it if you wrote us a review or gave us a rating on iTunes Stitcher, or even tell your friends about it. That's all kinds of awesome. Thanks so much. Until next time. <laughs>